in Kenya, it's sometimes believed that if you accidentally put your shirt on inside out in the morning, then you'll be getting a new shirt soon. It happens often to me. In Kerala, it's sometimes believed that if your hand is itchy, it means something's about to come. What is it? Money. If a bride puts her right foot forward first as she enters the threshold of her new house, that means that the marriage is going to be blessed. And if three different people tell you the same thing, then it is a sign that it will definitely happen. If you work hard at school, you'll get a good job because what goes around comes around. So I just need to make sure that I do things the right way and blessings will come to me. If I go to church, God will bless my business. If I go to that Christian retreat, then I won't suffer with or struggle with that sin anymore. Any of these sound familiar to you? It's the kind of superstitions that quietly reside in our cultures, even our Christian cultures. They're things that we've probably heard growing up, and unless we've actually stopped to evaluate them, we tend to just believe them. You know, if, if I see this sign, then what I hope for will happen. So what do you hope for? What do you wish would happen? Maybe it's to get married, or to get a job, or to have children of your own, or maybe it's just to live a simple life. You know, whatever it is, all of us are hoping for something, usually lots of things. But the one thing that all of our hopes have in common is that they are blessings. We just want good things. And so we look for the signs that what we hope for will actually happen. <clears throat> you know, if, the, if you catch the bride's bouquet at the, flat, at the wedding, you're getting married next. If my LinkedIn account is being viewed by a certain number of people, I'm definitely getting a job soon. You know, we look for signs that our hopes will come true. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through the miracles of Jesus. And the first two weeks, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're shifting over to the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, 1 to 11, the wedding at Cana. And we're going to have... We're going to hang our thoughts this morning on three points. So if you are taking notes, three points. Hope renewed. Hope in the present and hope for the future. That's hope renewed, hope in the present and hope for the future. So our first point, hope renewed. Now, this wedding at Cana is unique to the Gospel of John. It's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And there could be a number of reasons for that, but I think one of them is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they weren't eyewitnesses of this miracle. John was, though. See, John was one of the first two disciples to be called. In John chapter 1, verse 40, there are two disciples, and one of them is named. His name is Andrew. But the other one is just mysteriously not mentioned. 
That's John's way of signing his own work. You know, he refers to himself four times in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So when we read in John 2, verse 2, that Jesus was there with his disciples, those disciples were John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Now these five men were hoping for something. They were looking for the Messiah. John and Andrew had, in particular, been disciples of John the Baptist. So they started following Jesus because they hoped that he would be the Messiah. But till now, they hadn't really seen anything remarkable. You know, just the testimony of John the Baptist, and he also uh, told Nathaniel where he was before he came there. No big deal. Could have happened anyway. So here they are at the wedding in Cana. Now, we're not told why they're there, apart from the fact that they're invited, and we don't know who the bride and the groom are. In fact, we don't even know where Cana is. It's some small village in Galilee that we could only guess now. Now, this wedding was probably not unlike a Redeemer wedding. Have you been to one of those? People come because they're part of the community. People come to celebrate with the couple and witness them making a covenant to one another before the Lord. Now, if you haven't been to a Redeemer wedding yet, you have four opportunities in the next three months. All right? So if you get your calendars out now, I'm going to tell you when they are. So first up, we have Andre and Jamel, who are getting married on September the 8th. Then Andrew and Anne on October the 6th. Stephen and Naomi the week after on October the 13th. And then Reuben and Grace on November 17th. You can consider this your personal invitation to attend all four of those weddings. Now, it's unlikely that Jesus will be turning water into wine at those weddings, but he will be there, and so should we. So come along, let's celebrate with these four couples as they get married. But you know, interestingly, John 2 is not about the wedding. It's about the wine. Did you notice how the details of the the wedding couple and other things that happen at a wedding are just not recorded by John? They're left out on purpose so that nothing distracts us from John's main point. Not even Jesus' mother is named. See, the wedding in Cana is the perfect canvas for Jesus to paint his first sign, water into wine. Now, I know that culturally for some of us, wine is a bit of a taboo. You know, wine is often abused, and as a result, it's seen as a bad thing. But you know, the Bible is never ashamed of wine. It's quite clear that getting drunk is a bad thing. And the Bible speaks clearly against that. But drinking wine at appropriate times and in appropriate measure is actually seen as a good thing in Scripture. Even Jesus drank wine, and yet he never sinned. So having no wine at a wedding uh, in Jewish culture was a big problem. That's why Jesus came to him. It brought shame on the bridegroom and even opened them up to possible lawsuits. So have a look with me at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever called my mum woman, let's just say it would not be received well. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not being disrespectful uh, to his mother. You know, the Greek word that is translated here as woman is basically a generic word for women in general. It's probably closer to the way we might use lady or ma'am in modern English. But even though it's not disrespectful, it's not familial either. It's not how you'd expect a son to speak with his mother. So when Jesus calls his mother woman, he's not telling us something about her. He's telling us something about him. He's no longer identifying himself primarily as the, mother of Ma- the son of Mary. He's telling us he is the son of God. And as the son of God, he has a specific purpose. It's not to solve wine shortages at rural villages in Galilee. He's come for what John calls his hour. That wedding in John 2 was not his hour. So Jesus is not telling his mother, I'm not going to help you. Rather, he's telling her and his disciples that what he's about to do is just a sign of what's to come. That's actually John's favourite term uh, for Jesus' miracles, a sign. And John tells us that this one is Jesus' first sign. That means it's an announcement. It heralds the beginning of something. But the question is, how is water being turned into wine a sign? Or rather, what's it a sign of? How does it manifest or reveal Jesus' glory. Maybe it's in the fact that he could uh, miraculously speed up the fermentation process and so show us that he has power over the molecular structure of H2O. Is that it? Simply that he's powerful? Well, if that were the case, I think we'd expect him to demonstrate it more by maybe calming a storm. Or maybe it's in the quantity of wine. I mean, he did make a lot of wine that day. You know, from what we see in the text, it's about 630 litres. That's like over 800 bottles of wine. That's a lot for a small wedding. But hardly the biggest wine collection in the world. You know, that, that collection, the biggest wine collection, that's in Moldova. There's over two million bottles stored in these massive underground cellars. No, the point is not that Jesus is all-powerful, though he is, and it's not that it was a lot of wine, though it was. Turning water into wine is a sign of the new covenant. It's a sign that God is going to redeem his people and restore their blessings. So Amos chapter 9 that Andrew read for us earlier was probably something that these first five disciples had in their minds because they were hoping for a Messiah. They knew what the signs were. They were, wanting to, they were looking for those signs. Not the kind of signs that you know, we put our hope in, like catching bouquets at weddings, the kind of signs that have been prophesied. 
So have a look again at Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they, say, they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. See, wine is a sign that God is restoring Israel. And it's not just a bit of wine, but lots of it like mountains dripping with it, streams that are just flowing down the hills of like wine that they just, there's so much, they can't even drink it. It's such a vivid picture of the abundance of blessing that is coming at that time. But notice in this passage in Amos 9, the blessings are not what is to be hoped for. They are just the sign that what is to be hoped for has come a sign that points to something, or in this case, someone. So if you go up two more verses in Amos 9 verse 11, it says that this is going to happen through the line of David. It's a person. In that day, I will raise up the booth or the house or line of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So it's through the line of David that God will do this new work. That blessings, the blessings that are spoken about in 13 and 14 would come along as the natural consequence of that person coming. And what will he do? What is the hope that that person from the line of David will do? Well, verse 12 that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Now, that verse, honestly, it's a little tricky to understand, even tricky to explain. So I, I think the best way to explain it would be to have someone else explain it. Uh, his name is James, Pastor James, in Acts 15. And he said it like this in Acts 15, verse 16 and 17. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This new work that God is going to do by raising up the Messiah from the line of David is to call all nations to himself. That's the hope. That's why the disciples believed in Jesus when they saw him turn water into wine. It was a sign that it was coming. That's why water into wine, as John says, manifests his glory. Jesus has come to inaugurate the new covenant, to restore the house of David and to call all nations to himself. The disciples' hope was renewed. The promised Messiah was here. And John wants us to see that too. He wants us to see that water turned into wine is a sign of hope. 
It's a sign of hope not just for the disciples, but for all nations. It's a sign of hope for you. It's a sign of hope for me. Have you lost hope? You know, are you just going through the motions? You come to church because, well, that's what we always do. But honestly, you're starting to wonder if it's worth it. Maybe when you first became a Christian, you're, you're passionate, you're excited for Jesus. But over time, you've adopted a more sober approach to things. The struggles of life, family pressures, natural disasters, they've kind of produced in you a, what you might call a healthy level of skepticism. You know, I'm coming to church, but things don't seem to be getting any better for me. Maybe this whole church thing is, uh, you know, in the gospel, it's, it's good for some things, but it's not really good enough for everything that's going on in my life. Well, maybe you've lost hope because you've placed your hope in the wrong things. Maybe you're hoping for things that are too small, too soon, or too weak. You see, hope that sustains us through difficulties is hope in something that is much greater than the things we face now. See, if all I'm hoping for is a quiet and comfortable life, then I will be constantly disappointed and discouraged. But if I'm hoping for something beyond this life, if I'm hoping for something that will last forever, if I'm hoping for something that will satisfy in ways that nothing on earth could satisfy, that is the kind of hope that will sustain me through anything that life has to throw at me. Do you have that hope? You see that the lack of wine at this wedding, it's a symbol of the barrenness that Judaism had become in Jesus' time. It was, it was all about works. Do this and God will bless you. It was full of traditions and superstitions, much like the ones we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. That's why John records the cleansing of the temple in the very next section of John chapter 2. It is a harsh rebuke against what Judaism had become at, at that time. Mark also records for us in Mark 7 how the Pharisees had created countless traditions that involved the ceremonial washing of hands and cups and pots and even dining couches. All of them man-made rules and traditions. It's no wonder they needed such big stone water jars because they had so many purification rites that they needed water for. All of them they had made up. The Jews had lost hope that the Messiah would come and they'd replaced it with a vain and empty religion full of man-made rules. Does that sound like you? Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that it's possible to have the appearance of godliness but deny its power because we're really just living for ourselves. Let's not do that. Let's set our hope on things that are beyond this life. Let's live for something that is much greater than ourselves. 
Let's not be satisfied by avoiding difficulty. Let's not be satisfied by just going through the motions and doing the things that we think, you know, if we do that, God will bless us. No, let's seek first the kingdom of God. Let's remember that what we have in this life is not all there is. Let's renew our hope. That's what John would have us do in response to this account in John 2, that he wants us to renew our hope in Jesus. But that's not all John would have us do. You know, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, you'll be starting to see that Jesus is the Son of God who's come in the flesh, full of grace and truth. And that His coming inaugurates a new covenant and a new work of God. And the question that we should be asking at the end of John 2 verse 11, well, what, do the, what are the blessings that this wine symbolizes? And how do we get them? And that's our second point. Hope in the present. You see, the funny thing about hope is it's always for something that we don't have. I remember as a kid, I was hoping for a bicycle. Now, in our family, we've been told that you had to wait till you were 12 before you could get a bicycle. There's no moral reason behind this. It was just that my mum had to wait till she was 12, so that's it. We have to wait till we were 12, you know? That's how it goes. So my brother, who's two years older than me, had also been longing for a bicycle, like Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was getting old and he knew that the time was coming. And finally, the year came. He turned 12 and it was Christmas. So as excited young boys do, we got up way early and we crept quietly into the living room where the Christmas tree was and there, shining in all its glory, was not one, not two, but three new bicycles. Yes! I was so excited. My brother was less excited. He'd waited a long time for that day. How come Glenn gets a bicycle when he's 10 and my sister gets a bicycle when she's eight? It's not fair. He wanted us to wait the same excruciating number of years that he had. Well, I don't know what my parents were thinking, but I can tell you, I didn't care. I had a bicycle. All of our hopes were fulfilled that year. Not just the hopes of my brother, but all of us. And it was greater than we had imagined. We weren't hoping anymore. When Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, he's also saying that there will be a time when it will come. In that hour is when all of the hopes of Israel would be fulfilled. But not only Israel, but also the Gentiles. Those who may even not have been hoping like the Israelites. See, the blessings symbolized by the good wine came through Jesus' hour. 
Now, as we read on in John's Gospel, that term hour is filled up with meaning. So by the time we get to John 12, verse 23, it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. Jesus' hour is John's shorthand for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's his suffering that leads to salvation. His death that leads to life. So in John 2, the disciples' hope was renewed as they saw this water turn into the wine. They saw the blessing of that sign and they, that sign was a, what the blessings would come in Jesus' hour. So that's what they believed in. But for us, we look back. We look back at Jesus' death and resurrection. We look back and we see that he has already accomplished salvation and poured out his blessings. We're not hoping for that anymore because we have it. So just like the wine on that day in Cana was a very real, tangible blessing. They actually did drink it. It's not just a made-up story. That blessing served as a sign for what's yet to come. And as Christians, we have very real, tangible blessings now that are signs of what's yet to come. In the next chapter, in John chapter 3, Jesus records that famous midnight conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that the way that you will receive these blessings, the way to enter into God's kingdom is that you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. So in other words, John's showing us that it's through the Spirit that the blessings signified by the wine and through Jesus' hour will come to us. It's not something that we can do on our own. In Ephesians 1, Paul explains that as Christians, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the Spirit takes all of the blessings and the salvation accomplished through Jesus' hour on the cross and he brings them into the life of the believer. We have very real, tangible blessings now which are a sign of what's yet to come. So what are those blessings? A new bicycle? No, no, there's so much greater than material possessions. It's the blessing of forgiveness, of redemption through his blood. It's the blessing of the pouring out of his grace, which like the abundance of wine on that day, he has lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. It's the blessing of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's the blessing of adoption, of being called his children. It's the blessing of conviction of sin and the power that comes over sin. It's the blessing of understanding his word, the blessing of spiritual gifts for the purpose of building one another up. It's the blessing of skills and talents for specific purposes whether it's administration or hospitality or helping, it's the blessing of long-suffering and patience in trials. And it's the blessing of being part of a new family in Christ. All of these blessings have come to us now 
through Jesus' work on the cross and by the Holy Spirit. They are present signs that point to the certainty of what Jesus has already done and fill us with hope for what he will do in the future. We've been born again to a living hope. Each month, as we celebrate communion, we have another sign. We remember the abundant blessings that have been poured out on us through the pouring out of Jesus' blood. Right? Just like the wine in John chapter 2 is pointing us towards the blessings that would come through his blood, for us, the wine of communion points us back to his blood shed for us, his blood that washes us clean in a way that Jewish purification rites never could. It's a sign we remember. We're not looking forward in hope to things that we already have. They have come. They are the present reality for all of those who have been born of the Spirit. So when the disciples saw the water turned into wine, John tells us they, they believed. He's holding them out to us as the example of how we too should respond to these signs. Do you believe in these present signs also? Do you believe that as a Christian, we already have every spiritual blessing in Christ? Do you really believe that? As John, to use the language of John 2, are you just looking at the glass of wine or are you actually drinking and enjoying the good wine of the blessings of Jesus Christ? You see, it's one thing to say, yep, I'm forgiven in Christ. I believe that. But acting upon that is how we'll know if we are actually believing it or not. You see, if I believe that I'm really forgiven, then instead of walking around with a, a low-grade feeling of guilt, I'll be filled with thankfulness towards the Lord. Every time I become aware of sin in my life, instead of thinking of ways that I can make up for it with good deeds, I will go straight to the cross. I remind myself of Jesus' blood that was shed for me. Yes, I grieve the sin. And yes, I wish I had never done it. But I don't stay there. I receive his forgiveness and I walk in freedom. And when we do that, that will affect how we interact with others. If I'm really forgiven by the Lord, then I don't have to prove myself to others because I'm secure in Jesus. He has already forgiven me. So I don't try and hide my sin, but I'm willing to confess sin to others, in way, the, tell them the ways in which I've sinned, and in so doing, I demonstrate that I have put my hope ultimately in Jesus for my forgiveness. And I think perhaps the clearest and oftentimes the hardest way that we demonstrate this belief that we're forgiven is that we forgive others. We forgive because he forgave us first. That's how we know if we really believe that we have forgiveness now. That's just one of the blessings. What about the blessing of power over sin? 
You know, if I really believe that I've been blessed with everything that I need for life and godliness, if I really believe that the power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in me right now, then I will see increasing victory over patterns of sin in my life. And every single time that I'm tempted, I will not rely upon my mechanisms and my ways of managing sin, but every time I will go to the Lord and say, Lord, it's too powerful for me, I need you. Lord, would you give me that strength? Or if I believe that I've been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, then I will pursue them. I'll eagerly desire them and I'll be willing to take risks, even make mistakes as I learn to encourage others with them. Or if I'm suffering, whether it's through chronic pain, whether I'm suffering at the hands of others, I show that I believe in the Spirit's power to endure by fighting the tendencies to despair and anxiety. I continually remind myself every day that my hope is not in this life. My hope is not in my health. My hope is not that that annoying boss will disappear. My hope is that one day there will be a time when there will be no suffering and that that day will come. There will be a day where there is no suffering. That is my hope. And that is our third point. We've seen hope, renewed hope, hope in the present and now hope for the future. You know, all these blessings that we've been given now, like the water turned into wine, are just signs. They are the Spirit guaranteeing the inheritance that is yet to come. So when Jesus calls Nathanael in John 1, he tells him that he will see greater things than these. And the master of the feast in John chapter 2, verse 10, says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Do you see the pattern? The trajectory is increase. It's abundance. It's blessings. It's the smaller signs leading to the greater signs. It's the poor wine leading to the good wine. That's a pattern that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, it tells us that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Increase. No end of increase. Can you imagine that? Jesus' rule and his peace will increase constantly with no end to how good it gets. As good as the blessings are that we have now that have come to us through the Holy Spirit, they are nothing in comparison with what we will experience with Jesus for all eternity in increasing measure with no end. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, it does. It's just mind-blowing to think of this. We can't even get our heads around how good that will be because we can't even imagine life without sin, but it's coming. That is our future hope. But it's not now. And it's not now for Jesus either. 
You know, in Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus promised that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. That means that he's not celebrating until he's finished the work of bringing us to himself. It's a guarantee that he will do it. You see, this wedding in John 2 is just a picture of the real wedding. The wedding feast that we're told about in Revelation 19, where Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, will be joined eternally with his church. At that wedding feast, the wine will never run out. The perfect bridegroom will always provide abundantly for his church. And on that day, as it says in Revelation 19, we will sing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Jesus is looking forward to that day. He will not drink wine until it comes. Do you long for that day? Do you yearn for it with a deep desire? Then make yourself ready. Those who have made themselves ready are those whose lives testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's lives that are not lived for the present, but for then. It's lives that are filled with the good works that flow out of a hope in something more than this life. It's lives that have purposes beyond their own glory. Hope in Christ. That's what John would have us do. Hope in Christ, the Son of God, who has come to bring abundant blessings for all those who hope in him. And those who put their hope in him will not be ashamed on that day. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when Christ will come again in power and in glory. Lord, we long not just for relief from our present pain and suffering, but we long to be with you in perfect relationship for all eternity. Lord, we know that it's coming. You've given us the Holy Spirit that guarantees the inheritance. You've given us sure signs, blessings that we can enjoy even now as we look forward to enjoy greater blessings with you in heaven. Oh, Father, would you help us to demonstrate genuine belief, belief in you and belief that you really have given us those blessings now. Lord, would you, struggle, would you bless those of us who are struggling to believe that you have truly forgiven? Lord, would you lift up their eyes to gaze upon the Son of Man on the cross? Give them faith to believe. And Lord, would you grant those of us that are struggling to forgive someone else, Lord, would you give them the freedom to do so? And Father, we also pray that those who are suffering, whether it's suffering through chronic pain, suffering through job loss, 
or even suffering through persecution at the hands of others, Lord, would you comfort them in their suffering? Would you call them back from despair and anxiety? Lord, grant them the fruit of patience and long-suffering through the work of your Holy Spirit in them. Give them hope, Lord. And Lord, help all of us not to lose hope. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who will come again. Help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds as we await that great wedding feast of the Lamb where we will drink of the good wine with Jesus. Lord, we ask these things because you have promised that you will do them. Amen.